Hey folks, and welcome to episode 168 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the texts for the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. As always, that lectionary that they are using for these discussions is down there in the show notes. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We are at underscore Theopolis. And if you want to go the extra mile, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. With that, we hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes. And we're also joined remotely by Alistair Roberts, who is uh, joining us from Durham, England. And this week we're talking about the readings for the 19th Sunday after Pentecost in 2018. That's September 30th. And the readings for this coming Sunday are a smattering of fragments from Numbers 11, the specific pas- the specific texts within Numbers 11 that are that are on the lectionary are uh, verses 4 through 6, verses 10 through 16, and verses 24 through 29. Uh, but we'll have a chance to talk about the larger passage, um, focus on some of those, some of those particulars. Uh, then James 5, the, the assigned reading is the last half of that passage, the last half of that chapter, which is the latter part of the epistle of James, verses 13 through 20. Uh, but suggested reading of the first half of the chapter, which is verses 1 through 12. Uh, so we'll talk about James 5. And then the gospel reading for this Sunday are, is uh, from Mark 9, the latter part of Mark 9, uh, beginning of verse 38 and continuing through verse 50. So let me start with the uh, Numbers passage. This is one of the uh, rebellions against the Lord in the wilderness. In uh, cha- The first 10 chapters of Numbers are uh, uh, Israel is still at Sinai. Um, so you can read, if you're reading through the Pentateuch, you can see if uh, remembering, with, remembering James Jordan, if the Pentateuch exists. Uh, if you're reading the Pentateuch, you can uh, lump together everything from Exodus 19 through Numbers 10. All of that is taking place in the same location. Geographically, that's all connected. So beginning from the Lord's appearance on Mount Sinai in, in uh, Exodus 19, the Ten Commandments, the Law, the description of the tabernacle, the whole book of Leviticus, and the first ten chapters of Numbers. Uh, Numbers, the first ten chapters of Numbers are largely about the organization of the camp. Uh, there are the numbering, of course, the census of the people, but that census is part of the organization of the different tribes around the camp. So there are uh, different tribes that are set out at the different points of the compass. Uh, there's a, a good bit of information about the organization of the Levites, as the inner circle around the tabernacle. Uh, that's also included in these chapters. And then finally, in Numbers chapter 10, they set out from Numbers, and right on the heels of that, they begin complaining about uh, the food that they've been getting from the Lord since they uh, arrived at Sinai, or before they arrived at Sinai even, uh, from uh, back uh, the man who first appears in Exodus 16. And uh, in this uh, uh, there's a, there are some people in the camp that are complaining about the about the food. So this is part of this theme of grumbling in the wilderness that is running all the way through Numbers. Um, 
in Hebrew, the number, the title for numbers is Bemidbar, uh, in the wilderness. And the, one of the overarching themes is Israel's rebellion, series of rebellions in the wilderness, and the Lord's faithfulness through all those rebellions. Um, there's a, a little bit of, we need to be precise about who exactly is doing what here. There are uh, different groups, different subgroups that are being identified in Numbers 11 and in some other parts of Numbers. And uh, verse 4 in my New American Standard uh, speaks of the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept and said, who will give us meat to eat? Uh, that may sound like just a repetition, that the sons of Israel are being identified with the rabble. But uh, I think it's better reading to see those as two different groups. Uh, Israel comes up out of Egypt, not just as the descendants of Jacob and the, uh, and the, and the 12 tribes, but uh, Israel comes up out of Egypt with, as a mixed multitude with a lot of Egyptians. A lot of Egyptians have suffered through the plagues and decide it's probably better to leave with Israel than to try to stay behind in this uh, devastated Egypt. And so there's, there's this ongoing problem with the mixed multitude and the rabble that are going out with Israel, and they're the source of some of the complaining. They're not the only ones who complain. The sons of Israel complain too. Uh, but the, the rabble are the ones there. They would be, uh, Israel is organized around the camp. Then there would be the, uh, on the margins outside of that, um, spatially there at the, at the margins of the camp of Israel at Sinai or where, uh, at the place they're, they're, they've come to here. Um, that would be the rabble that's complaining about uh, getting food, getting, getting meat to eat. And the Lord's response, uh, or Moses' response to that is this prayer beginning in verse 10. Let me just say a few words about that and then, uh, get your thoughts on the passage, Alistair. Um, I, I posted a summary of a 20, 2005 article from Vetus Testamentum a, a few months ago on my blog. Uh, and uh, so you want to look at a little more detail, you can go there. Uh, this is often seen as a, an example of Moses losing his cool, uh, and he just kind of wants to give up. He's like, uh, he's like Elijah uh, going out into the wilderness and complaining to the Lord, uh, and this is seen as a, this is seen as a, a, a Moses, uh, the, the humanity, of, we see the humanity of Moses here. And uh, he's complaining about having to care for all these people and he's uh, um, wishing that he, that he could just give up on the, on the project that the Lord has given him. Uh, but the article that I summarized in that blog post makes the contrary argument that Moses is actually offering a rhetorically effective prayer uh, that um, uh, is uh, uh, intended to um, move the Lord to act uh, to, uh, uh, to to uh, uh, to give up His anger against Israel because of their complaining. Verse ten says the anger of the Lord is greatly kindled, and Moses is displeased. And then he offers this prayer, uh, and the prayer is like other prayers of Moses, is a prayer of propitiation. It's a way of turning the Lord's anger away from Israel. And the way that he does that is in a couple of rhetorical moves here. Uh, uh, he uh, uses the phrase, this people, in verse 11, that was laid the burden of all this people on me, uh, which is a kind of dismissive, uh, arm's-length kind of description of his own nation. This, 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 isn't, this isn't just some random people. This is his own people. But he describes them with this kind of dis distancing phrase, this people, uh, which um, 
rhetorically kind of puts him on, if if you're looking at a division between Israel and Yahweh, Moses, by describing Israel as this people, he kind of puts himself on Yahweh's side of the uh, of the divide, um, and he he sides with the Lord, um, and uh, his displeasure uh, is uh, he's expressing his displeasure at uh, uh, at Israel. He's he's as disgusted with Israel as the Lord is, uh, and then he asks a series of rhetorical questions: Was it I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth? Was it I who um, led them through the wilderness or carried them as a nursing infant. You can see, see those as just kind of a rant, a series of complaints by Moses. Um, again, the, the article that I uh, summarized suggests instead that these are ways of uh, reminding the Lord of the Lord's actions on behalf of Israel. Uh, Moses wasn't the one who conceived Israel. Moses wasn't the one who brought them forth. Moses wasn't the one who assigned him. He didn't take on the, the role of nursing father uh, on his own. Uh, he was assigned that role by the Lord, and he's uh, he's kind of laying the burden of caring for Israel back on the Lord. He's he's reminding the Lord of his of the Lord's own commitment to Israel uh, in something of the same way that he does when he's on Sinai and trying to trying to soften the Lord's anger after the golden calf incident. Um, uh, and he so he um, he appeals to the Lord's commitment to Israel by reminding reminding the Lord of what he's done uh, on Israel's behalf. Uh, there's um, one of the. I'll, I'll end with this, and then uh, I get some thoughts from you, Alistair. Um, verse fifteen uh, says, "If thou art going to deal with me thus, please kill me at once. If I found if favor in the Lord, do not let let me, and do not let me see my wretchedness." Uh, and the author of this article points out that um, uh, verse fifteen actually uses a feminine form of the verb addressing the Lord. Uh, he's been using birth imagery. Um, and um, nursing nursemaid imagery to describe is uh, is I wasn't the one who conceived this I wasn't the one who brought them forth uh, carrying out this birth imagery and then he addresses the Lord uh, with this feminine you uh, and uh, again attributes the Lord's attributes Israel's existence to the Lord and um, I think uh, is appealing to the Lord's compassion as as many. Old Testament commentators have pointed out the word compassion in the Old Testament is related to the word womb, and there are um, there are uh, uh, commentators that suggest that compassion is a kind of uh, can be can be uh, considered can be thought of as a, as wombliness, the Lord's maternal care for Israel, and that's the imagery that uh, Moses has been using here, and then he actually addresses the Lord in this way, uh, and that turns the Lord uh, to uh, relent from his anger, and in, instead of carrying out his anger against Israel, uh, the sequel to it is that the Lord calls together uh, elders that will gonna, are going to assist Moses in caring for the people. So um, the Lord turns away the Lord's anger. The, uh, Moses turns away the Lord's anger. Moses puts the burden of Israel's continuing existence on the Lord, and it's instead of being a a rant as it's often understood, it's uh, I think I'm. Uh, I agree with this interpretation. I think it's a it's a true prophetic prayer. It's a model prayer. It's a kind. Of, it's a kind of prayer that shows us how we're to uh, argue with the Lord by appealing to His own character, His own actions on behalf of His people, and so on. The parallel you drew earlier to um, 
Exodus 33, that sort of interaction between Moses and God, I think is a very helpful one. And you can see the same sort of rhetorical things taking place there where God refers to this people or your people, um, like a parent saying, look to their spouse, look what your kid has done. <laughs> um, but in this particular case, Moses stresses that it's your people. Um, and then when God would say that um, he will separate Moses and make him a great nation, then he says, will you go up with us? And he associates himself with the people. He will not allow himself to be split from the people, but nor will he allow, um, he responds to God's challenge by putting forth God's great name, that God has placed his name upon this people, that his his reputation is bound up with them. He's the the scan or the reproach of Egypt that God has brought them into the wilderness in order just to destroy them. He will not allow that to stand. And for the sake of God's jealousy, even and God's honor for his great name, he appeals to God to act within the situation. And so in both cases, I think we see a very um, rhetorically elaborate exchange between Moses and the Lord. One section of the chapter that's included in the reading is verses 24 to 29, uh, which is the story of Eldad and Medad who begin prophesying in the camp. Um, and, uh, but uh, in, in a, they, they haven't been uh, authorized to do that. Uh, Joshua is concerned about that. Uh, you were saying before we started the podcast that you're seeing a parallel between that and what's taking place in our gospel reading in Mark 9. Yes, I think there's a lot of things going on within that particular passage that are worth attending to when we relate them to the New Testament. First of all, we see the spirit of the leader of the people being placed upon others so that the prophetic spirit of Moses is shared in by um, the elders of the people. And then that pregnant statement of Moses at the end, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them, which of course is taken up in Joel 2 and then later referenced in the context of the day of Pentecost that Christ gives his spirits to the 120 and that they share in that. And then there's also Eldad and Medad type characters in that situation with anomalous cases like um, Cornelius and his household, who do not seem to be um, received the Spirit in the normal way, but are definitely marked out as part of the, the true people of God by their reception of it. And that question of Joshua to Moses, Moses, my Lord, forbid them, um, or that challenge, is very similar to the one that we see within our Gospel reading as the disciples talk to Christ and call him or ask him whether they should rebuke the one casting out demons in his name. But in both cases, I think there's, or all three cases, there's a, a sense of the fact that the work of God's spirit exceeds the immediate bounds of order and institution that we might place upon it. Yeah, the spirit, the spirit blows where he wills. And is an interesting, uh, the gospel reading, uh, Mark 9, has a, is an interesting uh, kind of twist on uh, statements of, uh, Jesus' statements of the, 
what uh, uh, Kyperians come to call the antithesis. Um, there are places in the gospel where Jesus says, whoever is not uh, with me is against me. Whoever not, doesn't, scat, doesn't gather with me scatters abroad. And that's, uh, obviously that's true. Jesus is laying out this stark kind of contrast, this stark kind of line between those who are with him and those who are against him. But um, the, the uh, reverse of that is also true. And Jesus, Jesus here says, um, when the disciples complain about uh, someone casting out demons uh, who's not among the disciples, don't hinder him, Jesus says. He who is not against me is for, is for us, or against us is for us. Uh, so that, that antithesis statement is inverted, and those who are not uh, those who are doing the work of Jesus, even if they're not, uh, even if they're not associated with Jesus, uh, are considered. Uh, uh, Jesus sees them as being on the right side of uh, right side of the kingdom. So I, I think that's that would be uh, one way of restating what you just said about uh, the Spirit's power to the Spirit exceeds any institutional uh, confinements that we might imagine for Him, uh, and uh, the the Spirit is at work in. Uh, people that are outside the company of disciples, and uh, even somebody who's not part of that company of disciples is doing the work of Jesus in casting out this demon. It's also interesting that the focus of the original challenge um, of John is that the one casting out demons is not one of the bond, the band of the disciples. And then Jesus turns it around in some sense to the band of the disciples when he says, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. And that movement, I think, is interesting. And it's something similar that we see within um, Matthew 25 as those who receive the brothers of Christ, um, even unwittingly, and welcome them are receiving Christ. And there's a bringing together of two groups here, um, the group of the, the known apostolic band and those who received them, and a process of mutual recognition that has to occur. Yeah, and, and just to put that into kind of concrete historical context, uh, think about the, the situation of the early disciples in the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Uh, they very quickly, there's a de- uh, opposition develops within Judaism. Over the course of the first century, there's persecution from the Roman Empire. So this is a uh, this is a, an outcast sect from Judaism and a persecuted sect. And so somebody who is showing hospitality to a member of this sect is actually uh, that's that's a that's a risky and courageous thing to do. Um, we, uh, putting it putting in that setting, uh, rather than uh, sentimentalize and just think about you know a cup of cold water to one of the, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the followers of Jesus, they'll receive a reward. That seems the reward is seems very generous for the act. <laughs> but when you put it in that concrete historical context, then to receive somebody in your home who might be on the run from the temple authorities, <laughs> uh, that's that's a risky thing for somebody to do, and you really are crossing a line when you do that. Maybe very similar to the concept that um, Israel has of the righteous among the nations, the non-Jews who risk their lives to save Jews. Right, right. 
So, the, yeah, so they really are crossing a line. They really are taking sides, even though all they're doing is giving a cup of cold water because they're not, they're not maintaining the hard line against the, this, uh, this uh, heretical sect and, as, so the, as the Jews see it. It's something we've mentioned at various points before, but in places like the judgment upon Sodom, there is, as part of that judgment, a test of hospitality with two people, strangers, coming to the city. And then the judgment upon Sodom in Ezekiel is highlighted in their failure of that test of hospitality. And I think there's something similar that we see going on in, in the Gospels, that there is a a test of how do people respond when provoked? Are they going to receive and welcome these people or are they going to cast them out? Right. And and I think the, the reference to Sodom is... Uh, is uh, not accidental. As Jesus goes on to talk about the punishment of those who cause the, some of the little, one of the little ones to stumble. Now, that's right on the heels of him talking about the reward that if you give a cup of cold water to one of the followers of Jesus, you receive your reward right on the heels of that. Uh, setting a stumbling block in the way of one of the, one of the little ones will be severely punished. Uh, it'd be better for him to be cast into the depths of the sea. And then he goes into describing the punishment that awaits those who set up stumbling blocks or reject the little ones that Jesus sends. And among other things, this is imagery that's coming out of the incident of Sodom, uh, the unquenchable fire uh, that will fall on them, uh, and um, this, this imagery of this, this hellish imagery that's used right at the end of uh, Mark 9, uh, everyone will be salted with fire, salt is good, if salt has become unsalty, with what will you salt it again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Now, salt has multiple connotations. Even in those couple of verses, it has multiple. The imagery has has multiple connotations. But uh, it can salt and fire together can't help but raise the uh, imagery of Sodom, which is a fire that falls from heaven and leaves a salt waste behind. Uh, so that, uh, and I think that that gives us a uh, I think a specific. Specific reference to what uh, to the to the judgment that Jesus is talking about in the in the first instance, I think the passage is talking about uh, a destruction that's going to be like Sodom that will just leave the land a salt waste, uh, and it's going to come on those who set up stumbling blocks in the way of the little ones who don't give a cup of water to the followers of Christ. They're the ones who are going to uh, be are going to suffer this burning and this destruction, and they're going to be. Uh, what's left behind is a salt waste. So I'm, I'm not sure in the first instance that this is, uh, I think it's arguable at least in the first instance Jesus is not talking about eternal hell in this passage, but rather that he's talking about the uh, destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem and, the, and Judea as a result of their re, uh, rejection of the gospel and particularly their rejection of the apostles. And the urgency of fleeing, um, I think, is something that we see elsewhere in the Olivet Discourse. Um, and this need to escape, even if it costs you your body parts, um, yeah. it's, quite, it's quite striking. Um, I wonder whether, is there any significance to the fact that it's hands, feet and eyes, each of which we have two of, and that sense of, um, one or the other, mm. 
I'm not sure what to make of that. Why those particular body parts? Me neither. Maybe some of our listeners can, can uh, illuminate that for us. Uh, I, I wanted to add, too, that uh, uh, saying that in the first instance this is about a historical judgment that falls on Jerusalem, um, 80, 70, obviously, I'm talking about. Uh, that's not a statement about the New Testament's teaching about hell as a whole. I think the, the New Testament is clear that there is an eternal punishment for the wicked, for those who reject Christ. Uh, the punishment that Jesus describes, punishments Jesus describes in the gospel are directed against, specifically against Israel, against, you know, too much is given, much is required. And these are usually uh, severe judgments against people who have given all, been given all the benefits of a covenant. I developed this argument in my Revelation commentary, which is uh, uh, for sale at a, uh, at, a <laughs> at a bookstore near you. Not likely, but <laughs> the Lake of Fire is the final uh, location of a host of different kind of uh, sinners in Revelation 21. Uh, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, be, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And um, I think that's a description, that's not a description of a historical judgment. Uh, given, the, given the way that revela Revelation is constructed, that is a, a punishment that's happening post-final uh, judgment. You have the final judgment seen at the end of Revelation 20. And then you have the description of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and the final, the final state of the new creation. And within that description, you have this uh, place of punishment for the, for the wicked in um, the lake of fire. So um, if, if that's not describing eternal, an eternal place of torment, it doesn't make much sense to, to describe the final state of the new creation, which is what uh, Revelation 21, 1-8 is doing including a description of an eternal place of punishment. Uh, what is the eternal place of punishment doing in the New Jerusalem if it's not uh, part of that final condition of things, that final new, new creation? Uh, so I, I do think that the New Testament does teach an eternal hell, uh, but I, there, in the Gospels, frequently I think we've got to be uh, a little hesitant to, to see that in the specific context where Jesus is speaking. Frequently he's talking about things that are going to happen in the near future and that are going to happen specifically to Israel because of their rejection of the gospel and their mistreatment of his, of his little ones. One issue about this particular section of the passage that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts upon, it begins with the challenge, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone, etc. That focuses upon one member of the of the group causing another to stumble and then it moves on to your hand causing you to stumble is this a shift from one person causing another person to stumble to internal things within our lives causing us to stumble or is jesus bringing out some form of a body metaphor for the body of his disciples mm. So then the, the, the eyes and the hands and the feet would be parts of the body of Christ. And if they're causing stumbling, if they're, if they're stumbling blocks, then they need to be cut off from the body to save the body. 
Yes. Yeah. And similar themes, themes that we see in um, 1 Corinthians 5, but also ones that will be very relevant to some of the situations that we find today of serious abuse within the church that caused people to stumble. And our concern to protect the body as this intact but corrupt thing mm-hmm. um, can often lead to us jeopardizing the whole. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that, that seems plausible. And I guess uh, you, you might want to kind of split the difference, at least uh, conceptually, even if, even if Jesus is specifically talking about an individual who's doing radical surgery in order to prevent, uh, in order to uh, avoid stumbling, radical surgery on his own person, as it were. Even if that's what Jesus is talking about, you can still say, well, the, uh, the microcosm and the macrocosm are analogous. And so uh, as, as we cut off the offending hand or foot or pluck out the offending eye of our own persons, so we do for the body of Christ. So I think you can make the argument that even, even if Jesus is maintaining the individual focus, that um, it still works to apply that at least to the, uh, to the corporate body. And connecting that with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see the fact that to flee from the city, they had to leave people behind and be prepared not to take the husbands or of um, Lot's daughters. Right, right. Uh, moving on to the uh, epistle lesson, uh, this is uh, uh, related in some ways because the, especially the first first half of the chapter, which is a condemnation, uh, a prophecy against the wealthy who have put their treasures into places where their treasures can become rotted and moth-eaten and rust, picking up the imagery of the Sermon on the Mount, as James often does. It's interesting, verse 3, the, the um, imagery that uh, James uses. Verse 3, James says, Your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. In the last days, you'll be stored up, uh, you have stored up your treasure. So the, the, uh, James sees the, not just the treasures being rusted and being consumed, but uh, those who trust in treasures, they will be consumed like their treasures. And that's described as being consumed as in a fire. Uh, and the specific sins that are uh, described in the following verses are, are talking about mistreatment of laborers who are not given their pay uh, the Torah, the Torah makes the same point. The Lord, the Lord will hear if we abuse employees and they cry out to the Lord. If we take the poor man's cloak as collateral and he cries out to the Lord, the Lord's going to hear that cry and he's going to take vengeance. Uh, but the punishment for that again is uh, described in terms of fire. The imagery is very striking. Um, first of all, the testifying of the corrosion of the wealth. Um, whether that's a proleptic reference to what will become of their wealth or to their wealth as a sort of um, maybe it's um, a picture of Dorian Gray type thing mm. where the true reality, spiritual reality of their wealth is corrupt and that when they look at that um, as, as it's truly in its true character, it will testify against them. It's not treasure laid up in heaven, 
um, where things aren't corroded, but it's something that they will be corroded along with um, because it's true spiritual of its true spiritual character, but also the fact that the wages are the things that cry out. Mm, the wages, yeah. um, like blood that has been shed. Mm. Right. Yeah, and, and the, the s- selection of the connection of that with the fields, um, a sort of maybe a Cain and Abel reference. Right. Yeah, and uh, already had uh, imagery of that sort uh, earlier in. Uh, James's epistle. You extend extend the the thought there. Cain kills his brother, sheds his brother's blood on the ground. Uh, what uh, James is condemning is not an assault on the person, but it's an assault on the person's wealth. Uh, but it's taken as if it were an assault on the person, and it, it's uh, it's like his pay is like his life's blood. <laughs> so. Not paying him is is like bleeding him dry. Um, I've, I've been thinking about this recently in terms of the uh, Ten Commandments, which I've been preaching on. I'm writing a little book on the Ten Commandments. I've concluded that uh, the the Ten Commandments do divide up pretty neatly into two sets of five commandments. I've resisted that idea for various reasons for a long time, but I, the literary evidence is pretty clear that the second five commandments are in different style. They don't name the Lord. Uh, they don't have any kind of rationale given as the first five commandments do. But uh, one one uh, one implication of that is that each of the uh, the first commandment and the sixth commandment are the head are the heads for each of these two tables, as it were. Uh, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not kill. Is kind of the summary statement of the of the second five commandments. And all of the second five commandments are forms of assault on the image of God. Uh, murder is a direct assault on the image of God in the person, but theft is an assault also on the image of God because the person's wealth is part of his livelihood, and here in James, is his pay is considered to be like life's blood. Uh, assault on a person's reputation through false witness uh, is, an, is an assault. An assault on his marriage is like an assault. It's like it's, All of those are different, different kinds of murders. And uh, uh, James's imagery here, the pay being crying out like a uh, I like Abel's blood uh, fits with that that idea, and then the how how that leads into verse six with uh, condemning and murdering of the innocent or the the just one who doesn't who wasn't opposing or resisting them. Um, that plays at the one it has the Abel illusion. It also connects with Christ Himself, who was um, killed by the wealthy and the leaders of um, the Jews. And that connection would remind us of places like um, Matthew 23, with all the blood from Abel to Zechariah summed up in the death of Christ um, or the taking of Christ as the ultimate innocent just one um, is coming upon the head of this people. Right. Yeah, and in in Matthew 23, it's not just... Christ's own blood that's a climax of that history of bloodshed, but it's also the blood of the prophets and apostles and others that Jesus is going to send. Uh, and then go back to things we talked about with James before. Uh, James, that's the context for James. Jeff Myers has taught on James several times in the past uh, at Biblical Horizons conferences, and I think has made a very illuminating case for the, the setting of James being a period of uh, persecution. When uh, James condemns the rich who are 
uh, condemning and putting to death righteous people. That's not metaphorical. He's talking about a situation where Christians are really under threat. Uh, and then the, that puts an, an additional dimension or layer to what uh, James says in verses 7 through 11. The patience that they're supposed to show is patience in the face of this persecution. It's patience uh, looking forward in hope to ultimate vindication because the judge is standing right at the door, verse 9 says. Uh, so as you suffer in patience like the prophets, like Jesus, then the Lord is going to, uh, Lord is going to intervene and will vindicate. And then that is the reality that will secure um, the reversal of fortunes and ground all the transvaluation of values that we see within this book. Because we count those blessed who endure, even if they're enduring and suffering, um, that it's the final outcome that um, enables us to see their true state, as we see within verse 11, the perseverance of Job and the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Why do you think he places such an emphasis upon not swearing? That's something that's perplexed me. Uh, you'd think about within the within the immediate context of uh, of his uh, first readers. What would what would be the importance of that? Is that what you're thinking? Yes, I don't know. Is it related to chapter four thirteen following the um, something of an over certainty about the future, continuing under current conditions and yeah. the need to recognize that we exist purely, we continue purely by the Lord's will. Yeah, it could, could link to that. It could also, it links obviously to his treatment of the tongue early in chapter 3. I mean, one fairly obvious comment is the James 5.12 is clearly referring back to the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a, as I said just a few, minute, few minutes ago, this is a, this is a recurring connection. Uh, that James is, has, uh, multiple overlaps with the Sermon on the Mount dealing with the same kinds of concerns. I, and I wonder in the immediate context, it, it's uh, talking about patience in the midst of uh, persecution and suffering. And that's uh, the verse 12 seems to, seems to be connected with that. Above all, my brethren. So he's given them instruction about patience. And then like the, the, the capstone of his instruction about patience in the midst of suffering is do not swear, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, uh, so that transparency in in those settings of persecution, and maybe it's connected with the the fact that they're being um, they're hailed in to be witnesses uh, before uh, before various authorities, and uh, they're supposed to follow the example of Jesus and speak plainly, speak uh, a yes and a no. But I, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. That, that verse 12 seems to be, it's not clearly related to, to uh, things that are going on in the context. The, the actual specific reading that's assigned for this Sunday is the last part of the chapter, verses 13 through 20. So we should say a few words about that. It ends with prayer. Prayer is a theme of James throughout. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and the Lord will give him wisdom uh, the la last week we talked about uh, James uh, at giving prayer as the proper uh, response to or antidote to the evil desires that lead to conflict and envy. 
or to go to the Lord with our desires and our requests rather than fight with one another to, to grasp the things that we desire. And here he ends on that same theme of prayer. And the first thing he asks about is uh, this rhetorical question, or this question, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Uh, so prayer is the response to suffering in, in the context that includes suffering, persecution. But then there's a, spe- there's a more specific there's more specific instruction given about suffering and sickness. And uh, this is a, uh, there's some, a bit of controversy in some sectors of the church over what, what this is uh, describing, whether it's describing medicinal remedies. Is anyone sick? Let him call for uh, the, people, the elders to, to give him his medicine and to pray for him. Or is it a, is it a kind of sacramental rite, a quasi-sacramental rite, uh, that is, uh, you know, in some traditions, it, it's developed into an, uh, a separate sacrament uh, of, uh, uh, of unction. Um, and I think the latter interpretation is right, not that it's a sacrament per se, given the narrow definition that Protestants usually use of sacraments, but it is a sacrament-like ritual. It uses physical materials. There is prayer associated with it. You use oil to anoint someone. Uh, there's a promise attached to it. The Lord will raise him up. And his sin will be forgiven. All the things that we that we think of as part of the definition of a sacrament apply here. the The thing that distinguishes this from the other, uh, from the what the Protestants identify as sacrament, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, is the fact that this would be uh, this would be done periodically in special circumstances to certain people within the church. It's not a it's a sac it's a mark of the covenant people in the sense that it is a rite that is done within the church. But it's not a mark in the same sense that baptism and the supper are, which are rites that all of the members of the church will participate in, that are um, kind of required of uh, every covenant member. This is for those who are suffering in sickness. Let me just say one other thing, and i get your thoughts on it, Alistair. I think that I picked this up from uh, Alexander Schmemann at some point. The fact that there's an anointing going on, anointing is a kind of chrismation, it's a designation of a person as a Christ, that Christ means anointed one, as we know. And so the person who is being anointed is being chrismated. He's being designated as Christ, as a Christ, as one who follows Christ, as one who's imitating Christ. And uh, Schmemann points out that, that there's a, there is an efficacy to this rite. Even if the rite doesn't heal the person, there's a promise that you may be healed. That's verse 16. But even if the right doesn't heal the person, there's still an efficacy in the in the right, because the right designates this person who is suffering sickness as one who suffers his sickness in union with and in imitation of Christ. So it raises the raises the stature of his sickness. It's no longer just a random illness, but now it becomes a it's it becomes a vocation. It becomes a ministry within the church. That um, you're suffering uh, patiently in gratitude, you're suffering uh, as a disciple of Christ, and that can be a ministry and a witness to the power of God to other members of the church. Tying back into our discussion earlier of um, Numbers 11, I think it also is a it's a memorial. It's a declaration to God that this is your person um, who's suffering in this position, in this sickness. And it's a calling upon God to act and to be present with that person in their illness um, on that basis. 
there's something of a memorial character mm. to um, the the anointing. One thing I'd be interested in your thoughts on, particularly as you've recently written a commentary on Revelation. Um, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. That's not an accidental length of time, or it's not the fact that James references that is not just an aside. Mm -hmm. That's a very significant period of time. It's 42 months or 1,260 days, or it's a time times and half a time. It's a very, or it's half a, se a seven. Um, it's associated with particular things within prophecy in Daniel and in Revelation. And then it's also something that maybe has a charged sin significance here of how prayer relates to not just the power of prayer more generally, but to their specific point in history. Um, would you like to speak to that? Uh, I, I think you summarize it. Uh, uh, I don't have much to add to what you just said. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the, I, I guess I do have things to add to what you just said, but it's, it's, just, it's, just, uh, it's just adding on um, a little bit. Uh, all of those half sevens are, you know, they're broken sevens. They're, they're, midweek, they're midweek transitions. So a 42-month period could be a, a, a period of suffering that doesn't last uh, a full seven days that doesn't go to it's that's not a complete judgment. It could a forty-two could also be a, a or a time times and half a time could be a period of somebody is cut off before they reach Sabbath. I mean, there you could have a an, a, a half week that's a, that's an image of judgment. And I think that's the way the various ways that it's used. All of those different time frames that you mentioned are used in uh, the middle chapters of Revelation twelve and thirteen, and they're different ways of rendering the same. The same kind of time period. They're all they're all halves of sevens rendered in terms of days or months, or just a general time times and half a time. It's the breaking in the middle of a sequence. It, it's a premature end to, uh, in this case with Elijah, it's a premature end to a period of judgment. Instead of going to the full seven days of judgment, when you have the, the final uh, sab sabbatical judgment, that's cut off in the middle by the prayer of Elijah, and uh, rain returns in that. After three three years and six months, so that's a reprieve. It's a it's a, like the resurrection of Jesus in the midst of history on the third day that uh, gives the world a new lease on life and doesn't means that the world doesn't come to an end. Um, so I, those are some kind of random thoughts surrounding what you said. I, th I guess I'd, uh, one thing I'd, I do want to emphasize, so we don't lose it. No, in looking at the interesting details of this, we don't want to lose the obvious, which is an exhortation to prayer. And an exhortation, a promise that prayer will be effective. James has said this before, you ask, you have not because you do not ask. And he ends on this note, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And God promises that prayers will be heard. And um, uh, that's a consistent theme of the, New, of the New Testament. The consistent theme of Jesus' preaching is to assure us that uh, our prayers will be effective and that we can... Uh, uh, we can expect answers to our prayers. The one thing I, I was wanting to hear more of your thoughts on was the fact that this isn't just about prayer in general, um, but Elijah was a man who was praying for judgment upon an unfaithful Israel. And that significant time um, is associated with that. And it's also brought out in the context of Revelation, where it has connections with the coming judgment that the book of James is anticipating. 
in part. Um, how can that particular example of Elijah speak into the situation of James's first hearers? Yeah. Step back from that for a second, more generally. Um, Elijah prays that it might not rain. That is, as you said, a prayer for judgment. And then before that is brought to its climax, he prays that it, it rains again. There's After the incident, after the repentance or the temporary repentance on Mount Carmel, he prays that it would rain, and it, that happens. More generally, you could say Christians sometimes are hesitant about praying that God would judge. seems kind of mean-spirited. But the Psalms are full of those kind of prayers, not just imprecatory Psalms, but the Psalms in general are full of prayers that God would act as judge. And uh, those, are, those are prayers for justice in the world. Those are prayers for things to be put right in the world. Uh, they're not mean-spirited. Those are prayers that uh, the world would be restored to proper order. So, um, in general, that, that, that's just a comment in general about the, the kind of prayer that Elijah's offering. I, I think that, yeah, put it back in the, in the context of the original readers, uh, the Lord, or, or James, uh, urges them to be patient, not to complain against one another, because the judge is standing right at the door. Part of that patience is praying that the Lord would act. I mean, that's what we find in Revelation. The patience of the martyrs is not uh, just silent, silently gritting their teeth, waiting for God to do something, but it's their patience is waiting for God to do something and pleading with Him to do something. And that's, uh, so in the, in the original context, that would be part of the message to the hearers that uh, uh, they, like Elijah, can fulfill the prophetic ministry of prayer and pray that the Lord would judge their enemies, uh, vindicate them, and uh, deliver them from their persecutors. In our discussion of Mark, we looked at the example of the one who causes the brother to stumble, or the, one of the little ones to stumble. And here we have the example of the, the one who turns back the wanderer from the truth. And those two examples, I think, highlight something that I've always, um, it's always challenged me, just the responsibility that we have as our brother's keeper, mm. which is something that we often don't think enough about. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>